This is going to be a little bit different type of a message. We're doing this series, which we're calling Deep Questions, and we'll do this once in a while for the, for the PM service. I think it works out really well, tackling some of these kind of theological questions. And the one that we're talking about today is, who decided what books are in the Bible? And maybe this is a question that you've asked. Maybe you say you believe that the Bible is true, but maybe you've wondered, well, how do we actually know that we have the right books in the Bible? Especially once in a while you hear claims that there are these other books that are floating around out there, the Gospel of Thomas or who knows what. And maybe that uh, there's been a conspiracy. Maybe certain books have been kept away from us and they should be in the Bible, but for whatever reason they've been, they've been kept from us. Or books that have been put in the Bible that, that shouldn't be there. And so it's important for us to uh, understand the reasons why we can have confidence that in God's providence we have the right 66 books that are in our Bibles. I thought of doing this series a few weeks ago when I received an email from a member of the congregation forwarding an article to me. And you see these a lot. There's a lot of articles, uh, things floating around there as far as, you know, extra books, lost books, hidden books of the Bible. And this article uh, from BeliefNet (coughs) was titled, Five Books That Are Not Included in the Bible. And it said, the Bible once looked very different. And I'll read you just the opening paragraph of this, because I I probably can't take reading more than one paragraph of this. (coughs) It says, Despite what many Christians believe, there is not one single version of the Bible. Biblical canon has changed repeatedly over the centuries with books being added or removed from the official scriptures. And that process still continues today. The Bible is read by Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and members of different denominations of Protestantism may contain very different books. There are more academically inclined Bibles that contain references and extra resources and more complete Bibles that contain books that were previously removed from the canon. Which extra books are included in these Bibles varies wildly. And if you read this, you would just assume, wow, I mean, the Bible is just this ever-changing flux and it, it, it's, it changes more than what's showing on Netflix the things come in, they go out. What, what's leaving the Bible this month? And what's going to be new? That is not what it is like. And this person that wrote this has a very, very poor grasp on how the Bible came to be. And it's important for us to be able to understand this better for yourself and to help explain this to other people as well. There were a lot of notes that I have for you. They would not fit on the back of a half sheet of paper. And so we have a longer set, and I'll ask the uh, men that I've asked to pass those out to you so um, you can fill in uh, many of these notes and hopefully have this as a resource for you as we talk about this. As I said, there's a lot of bad information out on the internet. Some of it is written by people who are taught poorly. Some of it is by unbelievers. Some of it is by people that want to discredit Christianity. And some of it is written by people who want to write sensational articles to get internet traffic, or often all of the above. So instead, we need to do some church history here on the formation of 
the Bible and what is called the canon. So let me clarify here. The, the canon, this is the list of divinely inspired books that belong in the Bible. This is canon with one N. Not to be confused with canon with two N's. Canon with two N's is a big gun that shoots cannonballs. Okay, so there is a difference between the two of these. We're talking about the canon with one N. So that is the list of divinely inspired books that belong in the Bible. And the first thing for you to remember, and I would say even the most important thing, if there's one thing that you remember from uh, this lecture here tonight, is that when we talk about the canon and how it works and how it came together, we realize that the most important thing is that early Christians did not create the canon. Early Christians recognized the canon. They did not make it up. We did not create the inspired scripture. It was given by God through people. But this was the activity of God. So we could not make any books inspired. God did that working through the human authors. But what the early church did is it recognized which books were already inspired by God. Which books were already scripture. So the, quest, the answer to the question that was the title of the series is who decided what books are in the Bible? The actual answer to that question is God. He is the one that gives us the books that are in scripture, the canon. He is the one that has decided this. And it's just up to us to try to, to recognize, to ascertain, is this an inspired uh, book or is it not? And when I say us, I don't mean each of us individually. I mean the church collectively. In the same way, I could say that I don't have a list of children. I have four children. I could make a list of my children if I wanted to, but I have my four children before I make a list. So in the same way, the church had these books of Scripture before it wrote them down into a list. But it was up to the church to eventually to be able to distinguish the, the, the true Scripture from any false scripture that's out there. Let me just say, this view is going to contrast with at least two other views. Uh, one view would be the view of the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they will often argue that the church is what produced the Bible. So there's a sense that the church is over the Bible. And therefore, we need the church, or at least the, the magisterium of the church, the Pope, uh, you know, the official uh, head honchos of the church, to let us know what scripture is. Because they would say we don't have a divinely inspired table of contents page in your Bible. And there's, there's truth to that. The table of contents page is not inspired. And therefore, we need someone to tell us what should be in it. And that's why we need, we need the Pope and the Cardinals and the, the Magisterium. But the truth is that God gave the scripture not just uh, through the church as a whole, but specifically through the apostles and those that are closely associated with them. We're going to see that historically the canon wasn't determined by a pope or a church council. It was, it was recognized by a consensus of, of the church, of Christians, of the churches. And actually the Catholic church themselves did not give an official pronouncement on the canon until the time after the Reformation. It was at the Council of Trent in 1546. 
Also, we have to recognize the, the ancient Hebrews, they were able to discern the Old Testament canon without an official council or something like that. So our view is going to be different than the Roman Catholic view. It's also going to be different than like a, a liberal view. And this would be a view that would be presented oftentimes, a lot of times in the Time Magazine articles and Internet articles. These would be, uh, the, this would be a view that would be, uh, if you took a community college religion class, they would come at it from this angle. And in that view, they would say that there were various forms of Christianity early on, and they were, they were all different. And there were all these different streams of Christianity, and they had to duke it out. And each had different scriptures, and one taught this thing, another taught something else that was contradictory. And eventually, uh, one stream of Christianity won, and to the victor goes the spoils, and they got to keep their scriptures, and the rest they all suppressed and pushed those down. And if we hadn't won, we would have other books in the Bible. There are a lot of problems with this view, including, well, this view assumes that Christianity is not true. It assumes that it's not true, and it assumes that God was not involved. If Christianity is true, and if the Bible and what it says can be taken as our starting place for this, uh, we see it's going to go a totally different direction. And if God is actually involved in this, if there's actually something to Christianity, which we believe there is for many reasons, uh, especially because Jesus rose from the dead, uh, then we know that it's going to go a different direction. This view also doesn't fit what we know from history, that the canon actually took, uh, the church's understanding of the canon actually took shape very early and for reasons that we're going to talk about in a little bit. One other thing, just at the beginning too, that I think is really helpful, is to recognize that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore is self-authenticating. That we're going to talk about reasons, we're going to talk about criteria, but ultimately there is something in the nature of Scripture itself because it is produced by the Holy Spirit that makes it, that it's its own foundation. That it doesn't need something else to validate it, but it is self-authenticating, self-validating. In a way, I'd say that it, it's not just the, the print on the page, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit in and through it. The Holy Spirit authored it. The Holy Spirit communicates it to us. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts of believers to equip us to be able to hear the voice of Scripture and sense that this is God's Word speaking to us. So even as we look at uh, let's say for the New Testament, we're going to look at three criteria that the early church seemed to have used to judge whether something was genuine or not. Uh, the thing that ties this all together and grounds it is that Scripture is self-authenticating. I believe this is not circular reasoning. This is not just um, you know, faith without any reasons. But this is the, the ground, ultimately, for all of this. You know, Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice talked about that in John 10. And if the word of God really is the word of God, this is also Jesus's voice. And therefore, if we are a sheep, there's something that is going to be caused that we actually will recognize this. And even if it's not everyone individually, that as a group, as a whole, God is leading us to recognize what is authentic scripture. And we shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers don't hear this because it also says that uh, those that are not his sheep will not hear his voice. 
And in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So a man without the Holy Spirit is like a, a smoke detector without batteries or power. There might be smoke there, but you can't detect what's there. But with the Holy Spirit, we're wired so that we can detect God's presence. We can detect his voice in Scripture when it's there. So Scripture self-authenticated. It also means that um, Scripture is going to give us the guidance for how to discern what is genuine Scripture and what isn't. Well, like I said, we're drinking from the fire hose. There's going to be a lot coming at you here. Uh, We can't go on for three hours, so here we go. Talk about the Old Testament canon. How do we know what books should be in the Old Testament? And in many ways... uh, This one, except for a few exceptions, it's pretty easy. The ancient Jews accepted the same material as the 39 books of the Protestant Old Testament. So we have 39 books in our Old Testament. If you took the Pew Bible there and opened it up and looked at it, you count 39 books. They wouldn't have 39 books, but they would have the same material. And if you're wondering how that works, it is because... The, uh, the ancient Hebrews in the Hebrew Bible, they put some of the books in different order. Actually, Chronicles comes last in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. And also they group some together. So, for example, uh, you didn't have First and Second Samuel. You just said Samuel. You didn't have First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. Also, all of the minor prophets were all grouped together in one book called the Twelve. Ezra and Nehemiah were together. So the Jews had 24 books and in different order, but it was the same exact material that we have in our Old Testaments. So that is uh, a big deal. Here's an even bigger deal. Jesus Christ accepted the Hebrew Old Testament. And thus, I say, we should too. Because when somebody proves that they are the Son of God, by rising from the dead, I'm going to agree with their view on Scripture. And he held to the whole Old Testament. There were some that didn't. The Samaritans, they were kind of half-Jews. They only accepted an edited version of the Pentateuch. That's the five books of Moses. And the same way the Sadducees uh, viewed everything besides the Pentateuch as less authoritative. But we see Jesus quoting from all parts of the Old Testament. Uh, the, the law, the writings, and the prophets, those were the three main areas of the Old Testament. They grouped them into those three, and Jesus held to all of those. In fact, in Luke twenty four forty four, after the resurrection, he said, it, it writes, it says, Thus he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophet and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And this is another way of referring to the law, the prophets, and the writings, which was the three entire sections of the Old Testament. So if you want further confirmation on that, just keep reading your Gospels, see what Jesus refers to, and he holds to the same Old Testament books that we hold to. And therefore, that's, that's, that's a clincher for us as people that believe and follow Jesus. Also, 
almost every Old Testament book is cited in the New Testament as Scripture. Um, Not just quoted, because it's one thing to quote someone. I mean, sometimes Pastor Nick or I will, we might quote a different writer or something, but we don't quote it as, thus says the Lord, or as it is written. But Scripture quotes the Old Testament in that way. Uh, The New Testament quotes the Old Testament as Scripture, and almost every uh, section of Scripture. Um, According to Gleason Archer, the only exceptions are the book of Ruth, Ezra, and Song of Songs. Uh, But it is um, quoted and affirmed as Scripture. Well, you may have heard, though, of the Apocrypha, and that this is a difference between Christians and Roman Catholics, and also Eastern Orthodox, as far as some extra books that are in Scripture. The Apocrypha is the name for the additional books that were included in the Septuagint. The Septuagint, that's the name for the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was produced in between the time of the close of the Old Testament, which closed around 400 B.C., and when the New Testament was written, uh, many of the Hebrews, Alexander the Great had, had conquered the world and spread the Greek language, and a lot of Hebrew was in decline, and so they needed a translation into Greek. So they did that, and they made it in uh, Egypt, and it was called the uh, Septuagint. So, and in that, they added uh, some Greek works that were originally written in Greek, not in Hebrew, that got added to this, and those books are called uh, the Apocrypha but they weren't found in the Hebrew Bible itself. And as we're going to see, they were not accepted as Scripture by the ancient Jews. So with that, if you were to take a look at the table of contents from a Catholic Bible, and I went and did just that, you would look and you would notice some familiar names, many, most of them familiar. Uh, there's actually nothing that's in our Bible that they don't have, but they have additional books that we don't have. Specifically, you see here Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, which is also Ecclesiasticus, and Baruch. There is also some additional um, material added to the book of Esther and material added to Daniel, including the prayer of Azera, Susanna, and the episode of Bell and the Dragon. So if you were studying the book of uh, Daniel here, we get up to chapter 12. If you were in a Catholic Bible, you'd go all the way up to chapter 14. But we don't have that in there because we believe that's an, an addition that shouldn't be there. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have that, and they have an, some additional material as well. The Apocrypha was not accepted as Scripture by the early church, but it came to be accepted, especially around the time of Augustine, uh, in the 5th century and more and more through the Middle Ages. But the Apocrypha was actually not officially included in the Roman Catholic canon until the uh, Roman Catholic Council of Trent, which was in 1546. So if, again, if you want to say that this is, you need an official church council, there wasn't one, and that was only with the Catholic Church, and it wasn't until the time after the Reformation. And part of that reason that they wanted to use these apocryphal books as scripture was because uh, they taught some things as far as prayer for the dead, purgatory, and some of those things. The Protestants said, nope, that's not biblical. But the Catholics believe that they found some evidence for that in some of the apocryphal books. 
And the Catholic Bibles refer to these as uh, deuterocanonical, which means second canon. Let me give you, I think, several reasons why we do not accept the Apocrypha and why we, we shouldn't accept the Apocrypha. Now, these are not something that, it's, uh, that it would be wrong for you to read. Okay, you could read it, that's fine. Um, in fact, it's probably the reason they had them in some of these ancient Bibles because they thought it's good supplementary material in the same way oftentimes our Bibles will sometimes have extra material or we'll have you know, books that we read together as Christians. Uh, but, the, but we distinguish that from what we believe is actually the Word of God. So <clears throat> the Apocrypha, um, some of the different reasons for this, the ancient Jews, as I mentioned, did not include the Apocrypha in their canon. So this is added later in the, the Greek version, but they did not view it as Scripture. They viewed it as something, just kind of an extra that was thrown in there. They did not view it as Scripture. These were the Jews before the time of Christ. And the second one, and I think this is, this is the, the big one for me. This is the, a real clincher. Jesus and the New Testament authors, they quote from the Old Testament scriptures uh, over 295 times, but not once do they quote from the Apocrypha. And I think this is huge evidence that Jesus and the New Testament authors did not view the Apocrypha as scripture, or else they would have quoted from it. So as I said before, the ancient Jews did not consider it as uh, canon. There's no record that Jesus had any debate with Jewish leaders about the extent of the canon. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain no commentaries on the Apocrypha, unlike other Old Testament scripture. The Jewish Council of Jamna in 50 AD officially rejected the Apocrypha. They had a council that actually said, this is not scripture. And <clears throat> Josephus uh, of the Jews says that after Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the Holy Spirit had departed from Israel and that the Apocrypha was then written after this time. Now, Jesus, they don't refer to the Apocrypha. Now, the book of Jude does quote from the book of First Enoch, and sometimes Paul quotes from pagan poets even. But again, just because you quote from someone doesn't mean that you're quoting from it as scripture or you're saying that this actually is uh, scripture in the same way that not everything that Pastor Nick and I quote from, we're saying that this is scripture. Also, First Enoch is not a part of the Catholic Old Testament Apocrypha anyways. So that's not even one here that we're talking about. <clears throat> At the time of the New Testament, there's no evidence that anyone considered the Apocrypha, these writings to be inspired works. So in the early church, they didn't view the Apocrypha as scripture. The Apocrypha was rejected by many early church fathers, including Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius, uh, Jerome, who wrote the Vulgate. Uh, he did not believe that these were scriptures. Uh, pope Gregory the Great, while Pope, and we don't believe in popes, but the Roman Catholics do, and Gregory the Great was one of their popes, and while he was Pope, he did not believe in the Apocrypha, and many more before the time of the Reformation. The Apocrypha also contains many errors and teachings that are inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. Uh, in Second Maccabees 12, it has prayers for the dead. Tobit 12.9 has salvation by works. 
There is some extremely fanciful and fictitious material in Daniel uh, 14. There's the story of Bell and the dragon. Uh, <clears throat> there's approval of immorality. Uh, Judith, in one place, God assists Judith in falsehood. There are numerous historical and chronological errors. For example, Judith says that Nebuchadnezzar was king of Assyria and ruled in Nineveh. So just things that don't fit with inerrant scripture. And the writings of the Apocrypha do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. Other Old Testament passages will say, thus saith the Lord, it is written, things like that. And in fact, 1 Maccabees notes that prophecy had ended during the time that it was written. So by its own testimony, it doesn't think it's really prophecy. And 2 Maccabees 15 says, Here I will make an end of my narration, which I have done well, and it becometh history, it is what I desired. But if not so perfectly, it must be pardoned me. So the author is saying, I've, wrote, I've written what I believe is a historical account. If I've got it right, that's great. But if I've made mistakes, please forgive me for this. You don't see uh, inspired scripture stating, I might be right, I might be wrong. That's the posture that we should have as fallible humans, but that's not what scripture should take. So that's the, the Old Testament canon, the New Testament canon. How can we know what books should be in our New Testament? First thing I want to say is that the New Testament was determined by consensus, not by a church council. You will hear things said, or if you read a Dan Brown book or something, it was the Council of Nicaea, they decided this, and there are all these nefarious reasons, and the emperor wanted this. That didn't happen. The Council of Nicaea was not about the canon. That was not something that they decided, that it wasn't what it was about. You do not have a church council deciding this uh, at all. Even for the Roman Catholics, which isn't universal at that point because Christianity is split into different groups, but that isn't until the, the 1500s. Instead, this happened by consensus, by different churches all coming to the conclusion that, yeah, this is Scripture. Yeah, this is from Paul. This is from the Apostle Paul. This is one of his letters. And therefore, we affirm this as Scripture, and this is the Word of God. So that is how this process happened. So over time, early Christians recognized as Scripture 27 books that met the criteria, three criteria, of being apostolic, orthodox, and Catholic. And I want to explain what those terms mean. Sometimes we use those for different churches. There's the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, or some even call themselves apostolic. But we're using these just as adjectives that mean apostolic, it's of the apostles. Orthodox means it has to do with right teaching. Catholic means universal. That's what the word actually means. So these were three of the criteria that the church used to screen what scripture was actually the word of God. So the first, and I think most important of these, was, was it apostolic? And they would ask, was this writing produced by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? Of all of these, I think this is the most important one, and this is at the, the root of things. Jesus commissioned the apostles. 
Remember, the apostles are not the same as just a disciple. You and I are disciples, but not apostles. Apostles were sent with specific authority. And it was said that the church we built on the foundation of the, the prophets and the apostles. And Jesus gave them, he, he said, I will remind you of all things. I will guide you in this. That the apostles were given as the ones that would produce the documentation for the new covenant. In the New Testament that we have, New Testament, Testament and Covenant really are the, the same thing. Uh, it's appropriate to call it the New Testament or New Covenant because it is the writings that documents the New Covenant, this new arrangement that God has made that was different than the Old Covenant. When we take the Lord's Supper in a little bit, we're going to say, this is the New Covenant in my blood. Jesus was the sacrifice that inaugurated this new arrangement, having... Uh, <coughs> all of the benefits of the new covenant living under this era. And so when this new era needed new documentation, the, the apostles were the, well, it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the ministers of the new covenant. So the first Christians received scripture because it was from apostles, that they knew Peter, they knew Paul, and they had been taught by him. They had seen them do miracles. They knew that they were witnesses of the risen Christ. They had been validated through all these things. And therefore, when they receive a letter from uh, you know, Peter or Paul, or sometimes it comes from them and it's from a, uh, someone, you know, even a carrier that they knew, so they knew for sure this was coming from you know, that apostle because, okay, Tychicus, we know who you are and we know that you're telling us this is from Paul. And, oh, it's, you know, signed in his hand, all of these different things. They believe this is from Paul and therefore and it, it, this goes along with things that we've heard Paul teach us as well. And so they believed it and they believed it was scripture. We don't have time to go into it, but you look at the way that the New Testament writers wrote, they knew that they were writing scripture. They talked about it in a way that they knew that they had special authority. They knew that what they were writing was not just mere opinions of human being, but that they were writing the word of God. So the apostles were sent with authority by Jesus, uh, authenticated with miracles. And therefore, this is one of the things that's screened out a lot. Because if it wasn't written by an apostle or somebody closely associated with them, then they said, well, there's no way this is scripture. So... There are some uh, writings called the Muratorian Fragments from about 180. And in those, they reject the, uh, a, a book called the Epistle to the Laodiceans, which was supposed to be from Paul because they recognize this is not really by Paul. And therefore, it is not really scripture. They also rejected a book that was very popular at the time called the Shepherd of Hermas, because they said, quote, it was, it was written, quote, very recently in our own times, and thus not by an apostle. They also rejected the Gospel of Peter for other reasons, too, for a lot of heresy. Um, but they recognized this is definitely not written by Peter. It's written, written way later after Peter had died. It's a, it's a forgery, and therefore it cannot be uh, apostolic. And if it's not apostolic, it is not Scripture. Now, there are some books that weren't written by an apostle, but by somebody very closely associated. Uh, for example, we know from internal evidence in Scripture and from church history some statements that Mark was very closely associated with Peter. And so, in one sense, 
uh, the gospel of Mark is, in one sense, kind of the gospel of Peter, probably from his authority, uh, probably a lot of, you know, information from him as well. Luke and Paul were close companions, and so there was a, a connection there. Uh, so kind of Luke writing kind of an authorized account uh, as one of someone closely connected with the apostles as well. I'm going to save some of this material for one uh, when we get to Second Peter chapter 3, and there's going to be some statements there just to kind of save time. So that's one of the uh, keys. Another was, is it orthodox? Orthodox, what does this mean? Ortho literally means straight. Okay, so if you go to the orthodontist, you're going there for ortho straight dentist teeth. Okay, uh, so orthodoxy means straight doctrine. The doxy literally means glory, but we use it in the sense of straight doctrine. So is this straight, is it correct teaching? And so does it conform with what they have already known? Does it conform to right doctrine as taught by the apostles? Now, some would say, well, how could they know if you didn't have the canon, you didn't know what scripture was, how could you know if it corresponds to uh, right doctrine? They say there seems to be a catch-22. You need the scripture to know what's right, and uh, you can't have that until you actually know. But here's the thing. They had at least three sources, the early church. One, they had the Old Testament, okay, so, I mean, this was the starting scripture of the early church. They had the Old Testament. So if it claims something crazy that just can't be reconciled with the Old Testament at all, then they know this ain't right. You know, if it says God didn't create the world, well, Genesis 1-1 says he did. So that doesn't work. So they had the Old Testament. They also had um, core New Testament books. They had some books that they would have already received and we know that there's some that were accepted really early on and with really no disagreement. So they had some basic things. Uh, Michael Kruger lists uh, some of those as including the four Gospels, Paul's letters, Acts, 1 Peter and 1 John, and maybe a few others. So if they would have had a few that they said, well, okay, we, we have the book of Romans here. We know this is scripture. If something is like absolutely can't match with this, well, then we know it, it doesn't fit. Now, there's some that maybe look like they didn't at first. The gospel or the uh, letter of James kind of seems like it's different, but when you look at it enough, you realize it actually does gel together just fine. And they would have also had what can be called the rule of faith from the apostles, just core teachings that they would have remembered from the apostles. This could also include, you know, there's probably some like baptismal formulas, maybe something very similar to like the, uh, the Apostles' Creed or an early version of that that every Christian would have memorized. And this kind of became a key that, okay, we know this. We know these basic things. If we get some letter and it it's totally doesn't fit that, we know that this is not scripture. So it had to be apostolic and orthodox. And these all work together, too. If it's apostolic, it's going to be orthodox. You could have something that's orthodox but not apostolic. And the Holy Spirit is involved in all of these. And the Holy Spirit is involved in this last one, too. Is it Catholic? Remember, this means Universal. Did the, all of the churches seem to have a consensus that, yeah, this is scripture. We're using it in church. We're, we're doing sermons on it. We're reading it as scripture. Remember, the, the sheep hear his voice. The Holy Spirit you know, guides us and helps us to discern 
what is spiritually written in his writings are scripture. And so things that were genuine scripture, the Holy Spirit helped the churches to, to see and to recognize that this was genuine scripture. And we believe that God was behind all of this. This was more a matter of collective Christian consensus, not just individual judgments. God gave the Christian community the Holy Spirit to detect these. Now, some books were slower to be accepted than others. And in your notes, um, I mentioned that a historian named Eusebius, at his, when he was writing, uh, categorized books at that time, at least into four basic categories. And he said, okay, so we have some that he called recognized books. And these were books that were universally received as canonical. Like, okay, all the churches, we agree that these are scripture. So the four gospels, the same that we have, Acts, Paul's letters, and they included Hebrews in there, 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation. Then there are ones called disputed. Now this sometimes can be um, misunderstood. Sometimes it, because of the Greek word, it says that they're spoken against. But it really doesn't mean that they're like doubted, like, no, we don't think these are scripture. It just meant these were slower to be realized. That there was some question, okay, is this or is it not? But the agreement of the church was, oh, yeah, it is. And eventually the consensus of all of the churches was that these are scripture. That included James, Jude, Second Peter, and Second and Third John. Then there were rejected books. These were considered to be actually good books, generally orthodox, but not scripture. Okay, so we might enjoy John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, but we wouldn't say it's scripture. It might be a healthy, helpful thing to read, but it's not scripture. So uh, this would include um, had the Shepherd of Hermas, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and there were a few others that I wrote in the notes as well, according to Eusebius. And uh, some of those were favored more or less over time. But then there were others that were considered heretical. So these are ones that Christians said, nope, not these, not at all. We reject these. This is nuts. This is heresy. These are unorthodox or forgeries. Or as Eusebius said, altogether wicked and impious. Included the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Matthias, the Acts of Andrew and the Acts of John. If you haven't heard of many of those, that's okay and there's good reasons because they're a bunch of bogus malarkey that you do not need to uh, concern yourself with. There are people that write about these and say, oh, we got the Gospel of Thomas and they'll put it at the same level. But if anyone puts the Gospel of Thomas at the same level as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it means they, just, they don't believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because even those scholars, no one thinks that the Gospel of Thomas was actually written by Thomas. They know it was written at least a century, you know, probably after Thomas was dead. It wasn't by him, and it contains all kinds of heretical things. So as we finish up here, we see how <clears throat> this kind of take, took shape. The early church... The Christians, you know, looking at these principles, got a consensus of what was genuinely scripture. The first known list we have of the complete canon uh, that's at least agreed upon, I just did some reading, there might be an earlier one by Origen, but uh, the first one that we know for sure is a letter by a um, <coughs> church leader, a bishop in, of Alexandria named Athanasius. This is in 367 AD. This, again, this is him, not him, establishing the canon. He did not have the authority to do that. Just in his letter, he just pointed out, this is our consensus. This is what 
we've all come to believe that these 27 books of the New Testament are our scriptures. He wasn't claiming a, a pronouncement or that this was his authority. But by then, it was, it was very clear uh, what, that Christians had agreed upon these books. Remember, it took them a while even to collect these books. You, know, you couldn't just email a batch to everyone and send PDFs. You know, they had a, it took a long time to travel from one city to the next, and you had to copy them by hand, and it took a long time to do this. So a lot of early churches, they just wouldn't physically have all of the books of the New Testament for quite a while. It took some time to even do that. And then for some to just uh, to be recognized and to catch on and say, yeah, this one, this definitely is scripture. Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox, so all three major branches of Christendom. This is a big deal. This should give you some assurance. They all agree on the exact same 27 books of the New Testament. There's a lot of stuff we don't agree on, but we agree what books exactly should be in the New Testament. So that should fill us with a lot of assurance that it is correct. And finally, no other books pass the test of being apostolic, orthodox, or Catholic. You can find articles that list all these obscure things, but there are no strong candidates for inclusion into the New Testament. The stuff that's out there is, it may say it's written by you know, Mary or whatever, but it's written centuries later, will contain just kind of wonky teachings, let me give you just two examples. I mentioned the Gospel of Thomas. This contains 114 sayings of Jesus. Many are very cryptic. Um, some seem a lot like scripture, but some are very weird. Uh, one of the weirdest is its final line. I'll leave this for you to figure out. The final line of this says, quote, Jesus said, for every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what that means. I don't want to find out. But that's why we're not preaching on the Gospel of Thomas. It lacks any account of his birth, death, or resurrection. It's very Gnostic. One of the early heresies talks a lot about looking for the divine spark within yourself. And it's probably from the second century. Definitely not by Thomas. Nobody thinks it is. Also, the Gospel of Peter mentioned this one. Also written probably at least a century after Peter was dead. It does focus on the crucifixion and the resurrection. But let me tell you one of the uh, um, episodes, how it describes this. And this might really change your view of Easter. According to the Gospel of Peter, okay, if it wasn't for the fact that it's already not really written by Peter, it's written by somebody faking this. When it uh, describes uh, the, the resurrection, okay, Jesus comes out of the tomb and then it's a giant Jesus whose head extends and stretches into the clouds. And then, after that, a walking cross comes out of the tomb afterwards and then starts talking. Okay? So that's part of the Gospel of Peter. So if you're thinking, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe Gospel of Peter. No. Nobody seriously thinks it is. It also has other heresies. One that is called the Docetic heresy, that Jesus only seemed human. It says, when Jesus hung on the cross, he felt no pain. Because he really wasn't human, he just seemed to be. Well, we have the real scriptures. And it teaches us that really Jesus did take pain on the cross for us. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we know he took that pain. He took that, that agony upon himself. Because this was him paying for our sin. 
the God-man, fully God, fully man, paying the price that we deserve but we could not have paid. And we know from that what we do have in your Bibles is certain. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us, and we thank you that it is not a mere human writing, but it is God-breathed that the writers were born along by the Holy Spirit, And we thank you also that you have given us, your church, uh, the Holy Spirit to be able to discern your voice. Lord, thank you that you've caused the sheep to hear your voice, Lord God, and that we can have assurance that we we have the right books. We don't have any extras, and there are none that we have lost. Lord, let us rest on those. Lord, let us learn from that. And when we hear Scripture, we hear you. And when we hear it, we hear of your great love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.